You're listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Under the Skin is sponsored by me and my rebirth tour. Coming up in Southport, Cambridge, Cheltenham, Aylesbury, Watford and Skegness. Cheltenham and Bristol are sold out, but there are tickets on the 23rd of May for Southport, 24th for Cambridge, 6th for Aylesbury, 6th of June that is. Watford the 7th of June, there's tickets for that. And there's a second date added for Bristol on the 10th of June. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. If you like this show, review it on iTunes. Just give it five stars. We're not trying to ascertain any actual reality. It's just having five stars sends us soaring up those charts and has a monetizable value to it. So get on with that. My guest on Under the Skin today is comedian and actual friend of mine, Simon Amstel. Simon's a TV presenter, he won't like that being in there. Screenwriter, director and actor, best known for his roles as former host of Pop World, never mind the Buzzcocks, and co-writer and star of the sitcom Grandma's House. In March, his film Carnage premiered on BBC iPlayer, a mockumentary set in a utopian 2067, which looks back at a time when human beings ate other animals. And it is primarily this, but many other things that I'll be talking to Simon about. Simon, welcome to the show. Hello. I mean, I've known you since I think you were like a teenager, possibly. Yeah, I think I was probably 18 or 19. And in many ways, you and I have had a comparable trajectory. We're mm. from similar backgrounds. Essex. We're Essex boys. We're comparable. Oh, yeah, it's my dog troubling you. Dog coming. Yeah, well, that's a good sign, well, I he's think, gone, isn't it? He's gone right past. Yeah, Perhaps no he's has some sense of the fine work you're doing for veganism and animal rights. I think that might be it. He's being compelled to come over there. Yeah. And uh, like, so we've, uh, oh, it's interesting knowing you as I do because, uh, like, I think we've like both lived in, in, in a way, socially with and culturally, we're from similar backgrounds. We've done a similar kind of work. And now I'm really interested in the sort of the direction you're going in. Like, when you told me you were making that film about veganism, I thought, well, that's an interesting challenge. And having seen the film, I'm a huge admirer of it. I've been talking about it on like my radio show. I've mentioned it on this podcast when I talked to Noel Fitzpatrick, aka Super Vet, because he's sort of of that opinion that animals and humans should be sort of uh, regarded under sort of a, a unified banner of living beings. Mm. And now, like, uh, I suppose uh, one of the reasons I'm interested in you making that film about veganism is that you found a way of doing it that wasn't overtly uh, foghorn, hectoring uh, activism. So is that, that was a very deliberate thing, I imagine. Yes, I thought that it would be wrong to make it unfunny. Mm. So, and because all the people who have spoken about it before, that's probably unfair, but often when you hear people talking about veganism, they're not being very, well, they're not being very funny about it. They're being, I mean, even your friend Morrissey, he's right, but he's not much fun about it, is he? It can become a bit pious, can't it, stuff about animal rights? Yeah, so it's quite tricky to reframe the whole argument and what we thought we could do well, by setting it in the future, if you set something in 2067, then you can look back at a time when people thought differently without being too judgmental. Yeah. So we have a psychotherapist in the film who says things, who was, who is, you know, of an age where she was there at the time. And she now, she can now speak quite compassionately about the people. Then she can say things like, we couldn't have known that we were involved in a slave trade because the language of the time suggested we were just eating our dinner. 
Mm, yes. Is it like a, that this uh, satirical lens that you've applied is like, if you think about it, it's a sort of a Swiftian device, like the idea, like in Gulliver's Travel, he's, he goes to a land where everyone's little and a land where everyone's big mm. and it gives us a different perspective. So by altering the context, it's a different way of regarding things that are ordinary to us and ordinary to us now. And it's it certainly like changed my view. I thought, what, how, which uh, like section of the film did you find most challenging to, to make and which did you consider to be the sort of the most important part the thing that really uh seems to have connected with people and showed them something they didn't know is the part about um cows who are not only forcibly impregnated but then when their um child is born that child is taken away from them so that we can have the milk because we perceive that milk wildly to be for us (laughs) It's not for the child that's just been born. So that child gets taken away. And if it's a girl cow, it's uh, uh, it's allowed to live until it grows up so that, that process can be repeated. If it's a boy cow, killed. Similarly yeah. with the egg industry, um, the boy chicks, because they ha- they ha- they're of no interest to the egg industry, are uh, shredded or gassed at birth. And uh, it was things like that that I really didn't, didn't know i'd watched the the documentary earthlings which is a really unfunny documentary about what goes on yeah. and uh my thinking about making carnage was if we could find some way to make this sort of palatable and, and entertaining as well as informative so that when we're telling you these things you're laughing rather than going oh please don't tell me this i really like eggs you've yeah. you know you've had a bit of a laugh and you go oh it's yeah it's a good it's a good point I can't remember where I was. I've gone off. You said that the dairy Oh, yeah, so I didn't know about that. Uh, I didn't know that the children get stolen. I just knew that... My feeling was just that it was a bit strange Mm. that we suck on the breasts of other animals. Metaphorically, I suppose. Or at least at a distance, remotely. Remotely, that's the word. Mm. Um, And so, but I thought it would be quite funny to have a musical... Um, where one of the characters was a, was a cow, and there was a song sung from her perspective about the cow, about the um, the milk uh, that was hers being stolen, so that humans could drink it. And then, so I had to research what actually goes on. Then found out that thing about you know that cow's uh, child would be stolen from her, and she cries. She cries for days. And uh, and it's so normal to us. It's so normal, we, and we think that we don't think about it. We just think, well, of course you have to have milk. We were brought up thinking you have to have milk. It was in our schools. Mm. We think that we uh, it's the only place we can get calcium from. It's all nonsense made up by an industry that's taking children away from mothers. I can testify to the efficacy of that aspect of the film because that's a bit where my girlfriend started crying and refused to watch the rest of it. I'd already seen it myself, so I I mean, I I yielded because it was a crying woman as well. But like... um, what I think affected Laura as a recent mother is that, you, like, it told a story from the perspective of, like, how we were asked to empathise mm. with a cow having a baby and not wanting that baby taken away. And I like, once I was on holiday in Devon, right, in like sort of little cottage thing, mm. and down the road there was, a, I guess, a dairy farm, and it was that we were there in the morning the ca- the calves were with their mums and then like this sort of almighty sort of ca- what, catawalling mooing I don't know this sort of de- dreadful distress sounds came about and it was where they'd separated the calves mm. from the mothers and I was sort of like outside trying to get a signal wandering around my phone and I sort of saw it oh it was it was, uh, it was a, yeah, apocalyptic it was a really unpleasant unnatural dreadful thing and as you've sort of I- indicated there it sort of depends upon unconsciousness I, a quote I heard once is wisdom is acting on knowledge 
knowledge that once you know something you should act on it and then none of us really sort of have access to the information about how for example the dairy industry works once you're hit with that information if you're told it in a palatable way change is kind of inevitable and quite easy now we're sort of living in a time now where there are vegan cheeses in tesco's and sainsbury's and you can just now choose those instead and you can choose your you know your alternative milk if you need some milk in your tea your partner Dan said when I was around the other day, he goes like that some people around your house and they were going, what is it? And you had some sort of vegan cheese and they were like, what is this vegan cheese? What's it actually made of? And Dan said, well, how could it be any worse than like the other method of making cheese to yeah. let cow milk go sour and curdle? <laughs> yeah, he's clever, that guy. Yes, he is. In all but one area where he seems to be uh, <laughs> terribly flawed. He's got a terrible blind spot when it comes to relationships, <laughs> but other than that, a very bright man. Um, so like, like, I suppose it's the what I thought was brilliant, and one of the things that it made me think about is that we default to what's normal. And like having a young daughter mm. myself, like I was thinking, like that that it seems like a decision to make the ch- child vegan. Like, and I'm like, I don't, I don't want. I, I'm suddenly aware of her purity and stuff, and I'm like, I don't want her to be eating stuff that's not good for her. But making her vegan is such a choice. But of course, that's just framing because it's a choice to give her meat as well. It's a yes. choice to give her eggs. The it's alternative is to make her a carnist. Yes. And I, I like that moment in the film where the, your fictional activist, what's he yeah, called? Troy King-Jones. Troy King-Jones. When what, how did you come up with that idea and that character of this sort of affable and likeable activist? The Malcolm X of vegans, I suppose, was he? At first there were two characters in the script. There was a Malcolm X type and a Martin Luther King type. And so we had this sort of non-violence guy and the, we had the by any means necessary guy fighting it out. And then I thought it would be interesting to see one character go on a journey from by any means necessary to... Um, compassion and love and sort of um, uh, that sort of thing. Right, so and that was like, like when he started leaving flowers outside butcher shops. Yes, yes. I thought that's... Because I, I, I felt like we've seen the angry vegans and we've seen the bland vegans, both of whom are kind of either a bit like humorous or annoying. Mm. And what what maybe the shift would be if we all started uh, loving the people that we're attacking and... Uh, and that's why the psychotherapist is there as well to say that people didn't know it's all not it's not fair. And so then the Troy King Jones was both of those things in one, and then it showed a journey for the vegan movement. The other uh, key character is um, the fifth wave feminist, Maud Polikoff, because I felt that um, perhaps the next wave of feminism would be where we take into consideration the lives of female non-humans as well as female humans because that cow thing and that egg thing that is a feminist issue that's a that's a a mother having her child stolen from her and we are interfering in the in the uh in the reproductive rights of these non-human animals and we shouldn't be interfering it's nothing to do with us it's a good uh i i like the idea that the the veganism is a kind of aperture into other politicised ideas and that like milk and could could there be more essential symbols of femininity than the egg and Mm. milk they're the sort of the key symbols of like sort of a biological human femininity I suppose that's a really really good point and I thought there were lots of examples Simon in in uh, your film Carnage of uh, of an implication that there was another way of looking at the world beyond even veganism. I thought there was like sort of same gender relationships. Meditation seemed to be uh, hinted at. Like you seem to be saying that there's a, a different strata of being where where a different pers- 
perspective is possible. Yes, I suppose we thought about how the change could come about and we thought that the key thing would be empathy and um, and fluidity. So in terms of empathy, I thought about how it happened for me, which was going to Thailand and feeling a bit calm and reading a book on Buddhism called Taming the Monkey Mind, which included things like um, Buddhists don't drink alcohol and they don't eat animals. And uh, why not meditate? Because that might calm you down as well. So I suppose I did some of that or all of that eventually. Um, I started as an indoor vegetarian, then moved to being a vegetarian, even if in a restaurant where it might be trickier. And uh, alcohol was quite easy to to give up because I was in a relationship at the time. The only reason I ever drank uh, was to find love because it was too awkward to dance without it. And um, and then meditation just seemed like something I could do. And um, And so I thought about how we would get there. And what meditation uh, had done for me, which was create a kind of um, calm and compassion for... I sort of learned about karma, I suppose, and, I, and so some compassion happened. For, I suppose I got out of my head. If the, the thing with Buddhism is to uh, move beyond the self, move beyond, get to a place of no self. And I had a very pretentious stand-up show, which actually titled No Self once. And um, that's the deal, I think, that we're sort of getting very over the idea title. that... What was that one? Very pretentious title. I know I said it. I know, I'm just pulling I mean, it up I was in being... case you thought you were going to just breeze through it. I thought, let's make it a little stop-off point. I think if I'm being self-deprecating, you shouldn't also kick me. Really? Yeah, I think... Well, I don't if... think we've got that. <laughs> <laughs> when was that deal If made? I've done it, if I've said I'm pretentious, you can't then go, you're yeah, pretentious. pretentious. I've done it. Yeah, it's a very pretentious title. Very very pretentious rule, The uh, the, the no... Double dipping on the self-depreciation. Necessary to to go on the attack when the person is already on the floor, all vulnerable. I don't see you as being on the floor, all vulnerable, uh, with your stand-up show, no self, or even with your reference to it. So um, I think that. Hang on, have I answered the question? No, I think there's what's been... <laughs> no, I thought you've brought us to a place that I think is more interesting even than that. It's, uh, well, that's good. Then. It's that veganism, yeah. you see it as part of a journey of personal enlightenment. It's difficult, I think, to think of yourself as an empathetic being if you are eating another being. Mm. Because you think, oh, it's, you know, I mean, we're in a place still where people say, but it's delicious. Whatever the, whatever the thing that once was walking around and having its own inner life was to say it's just delicious. And that's to, for that to be acceptable is a really strange thing, isn't it? So if you are whatever, you know, if you have any sort of, um, I don't know, if you have any kind of feeling like we should be doing less harm to others then that should include non-human animals. The only reason it wouldn't include that is if you regard humans as the most important thing on the planet mm. and everything else being there to serve the human being. That's a very interesting because that's a narrative that comes up in the progressivist argument that human beings are indeed the summit of all achievement. Now that that sort of like some sort of monotheistic ideas sort of say, oh God, you know, God made man in his image, thus making us sort of some kind of sultan among the animals. But also like the sort of atheistic humanitarian worldview is that there is nothing else out there. Human beings are the apex of what's possible with consciousness. I mean, they, I suppose they don't sort of atheists don't generally go as far as saying, well, who knows whether or not in limitless space there are more advanced forms of life. But the idea that there is an author, a creator, or an 
aspect of consciousness that is superior to human beings and somehow involved with human consciousness is something that is necessarily and uh, definitively eschewed by the idea of atheism. Now, what I think is interesting about what you're saying about veganism now is that you're saying that there's a point that there's a place that you reach in yourself spiritually where eating animals would become unacceptable to you, along with other forms of cruelty, alongside other forms of ignorance. It would be insane now, I think. If you, if, if uh, but it's all in the it's in the it's in the language. Mm. So so people are eating chicken. They're not eating a part of a chicken that was ripped from him or her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all it's all in the language. But I think I've diverged away from what you were talking about. I think I had a better thing to say about that. Um, we were talking about oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So, in terms of in terms of human beings being the most significant thing on the planet, mm. I heard somebody say that actually, if hu- human beings kill themselves off the planet would carry on quite happily whereas if bees were all gone the whole thing would fall apart yes actually it's bees (laughs) (laughs) bees bees are the most important thing it's extraordinary the role we found ourselves playing in our own ecosystem, and it's this sort of this dominance and domination that's at the heart, I suppose, of what like what well, it's a key moment in your film where um, the fictional uh, protagonist Troy King Jones, is that right? Yeah, says like uh, we're not vegan, they're carnists. Mm. So that's I suppose a reframing of like you know like a Weltanschauung. That's a posh intellectual word in German means world view. It's a changing of the world view. Weltanschauung. This is a different Weltanschauung. So like when, once you start to look at the world from the perspective of it isn't normal to eat meat. Mm. It's just there are economic... even to say meat. Why are we saying meat? Right, animals. Right, I say other animals. Mm. So it's like it, it's a decision. It's a choice, and it's an exclusion of other kinds of information. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely, it's definitely, and I think people know now, right? I mean, everyone knows what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think you're right, mate. And I also think that sort of this idea of unconscious living mm-hmm. is perhaps the is, is a is is what's determining. Like we're 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 sort of aware that it's not good to go around in cars. We're sort of aware that it's not good to be reliant on fossil fuels. I suppose that um, the decision between conscious living and unconscious living is a framework that I personally understand because of my uh, the way that I interface with the world, Simon, is through addiction. And like when I was unconscious of all the reasons that I drank and took drugs, it was possible to perpetuate it. When I was unconscious of the reasons that I was having the kind of sex life that I had, I was able to perpetuate. Once you start to realise that you are medicating yourself through this behaviour, there is an inability to perhaps be alone and un- a, se- a sense of pain, a sense of loss, a sense of loneliness that leads to that behaviour. Perhaps the uh, you know eating of other animals, to use your parlance, is uh, a sort of a, a globalisation of this unconsciousness, that we don't have the story of what the dairy industry means. We don't have the story of what the consequences are. And as this story becomes profligated, then, or pro- proliferated, then we have more, uh, then the, the ignorance is eroded and the behaviour would likely cease or at least change. I agree. You agree with that? Yes. Well, your film is a, a fine example of it. Now, where, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, mate, is uh, th- why did you start thinking about things differently? What, when do you think you sort of, like, you mentioned like going away to Thailand and reading that book. I, like For a while, it's been evident that you're on a sort of a personal and spiritual journey and that it's started to affect the kind of work that you've done. It's affected the kind of relationships that you're having. Mm-hmm. And like, if you remember, like, sort of, you know, like so before when I said the thing about, uh, you, you know, you went, oh, you can't say that about me. I've been self-deferential. Now, if you think of the early part of your career, a lot of people will know you from things like Pop World and Buzzcocks, very much built on acerbity, sort of casual, flippant cruelty. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it wasn't casual, flippant cruelty. No, you don't think so? 
No. You don't think what those some of those interviews and the stuff on Buzzcocks? It, it was a sort of what, what, what? How would you deter, define that? Definitely not casual. It wasn't flippant, and my aim wasn't to be cruel. What was it? You know what? I think it was all of that stuff. Um, I think the thing that think the thing that runs through anything I've done, like from the beginning up to now, is that there's been a real, um, a real desire to express the truth. Mm. And if that happens to be quite violent sometimes, I don't really mind. And if somebody feels a bit annoyed because their ego has been a bit deflated, I'm fine with that as well. And I think it probably... I've just been writing this um, book, which is a combination of transcripts from my stand-up and further thoughts and feelings, all edited together rather nicely. And I think so much of what I've been up to and this film Carnage has come down to being in Essex as a young gay person who's all confused about who he is and not being able to exist within that culture unless I I um, deconstruct it to a point that it's ridiculous. So at the point that I was growing up in Essex, it wasn't possible for me to be who I was. What was normal was something else. And so I had to take what was normal and and, and, and tear it down. And because otherwise... Uh, I wouldn't be able to exist. Tear it down in your own mind. Yeah, just that. Well, that's just all ridiculous. That if 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 you if you're saying that the the law is that I can't be part of um, marriage, then marriage is an absurdity. Mm. I'm sorry to say that now because of course yours is coming up. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, if there's anything that um, or anyone who's like. Yeah, and I suppose... Um, so you wouldn't campaign for the same-sex couples to well, marry? You would just say marriage is a ridiculous institution in and of itself? Yeah, I think I would have... I would have. Uh, yeah, I would have said that. Obviously, it's good to... It's good that the... I mean, it's good that the law is there now, but I, my child self feels like it's a bit late. Do you feel like a sort of a sense of loyalty to that child self? Like, you know, see, you took umbrage to the idea that 17-year-old pop world Simon was cruel or frivolous or flippant, but you see that it's actually a sort of a personal crusade for truth even before you had the language for it. So, like, by that notion, would you, how would you term or understand that behaviour now? Would you say, like, oh, I'd still be like that on a show because I'd still be looking for truth or I just wouldn't do a show where you had to interview someone off steps or whatever? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be interested in doing that anymore. But I felt like I, there were people I really loved growing up, like Ruby Wax, who did that sort of thing. Mm. That sort of, you know, quite uh, jibe. Is that the right word? Yeah, like maybe sort of agitate people yeah, and just yeah. sort of, you know, I wouldn't. But yeah, I wouldn't be interested really in um, poking at celebrities now because I feel like I did it and I, I get what that was about. But now I think there I have like I have the uh, the skills. I you know I, I'm a I'm a trained clown. Did a month of clown training in Paris. I know how to do funny things now. And so to be able to take a subject that I feel quite passionately about and use all those skills in order mm. to say something a bit more interesting than <laughs> this pop star is silly, that's quite handy to be able to do now, I feel. And also I'm not coming from a place of... Um, the other thing about growing up as a gay person where I grew up was that I felt like I needed to get to a place of safety. And to me, that was the television. Maybe a bit like you, that there was safety in there. And there was, when people would um, say something racist or sexist or homophobic in the television, people would boo. 
if people said such things in my living room, they would be applauded. <laughs> and I was the odd person. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've got to get into the television. There is safety there. I'll be okay in there. Uh, I'll be accepted. And that turned out to be the case. And once I was accepted in there, when I went back to my family, it was easier for them to accept me once I'd been accepted by um, the culture that I was in. So I can't remember why I started saying that. Well, I think we were sort of talking about, we were talking about personal self-acceptance, talking about the need to deconstruct. And to some degree, Simon, it was your response to me saying, oh, you're a bit off key with people on Buzzcocks or whatever. And you said, no, 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 it's because I was crusading after truth. Yeah, because everything was so... You know, the problem is unconscious living, as you're saying. And to me on TV, that was very bland people saying very bland, untruthful mm. things to each other, pretending that they were friends in an interview situation and pretending that they loved the thing that was that, that was being promoted. Mm. And I couldn't... I, fe- I felt like, I mean, naively, that TV is where the truth is. TV is where I get saved and uh, I feel all right in the world. And for people to be... Um, being as, uh, as as offensively bland as... Uh... But do you think it's difficult, because I do, that, uh, that what I find myself is that my personal challenges and my sort of ideology sometimes are at odds. An example that I think makes this much clearer than the, the, the words I'm using at the moment is like, say the other day I went to a football. Yes. You know, we, we spoke on the phone when I was on my way there. Uh, as a privileged person of some notoriety, I get to go into the chairman's sort of special area and stuff. And when I, when I first go into that chairman's suite and I see everyone sat down, like including famous ex-footballers of the club, the board of directors of the club, and there's a sort of a, an atmosphere of status and mm-hmm. power in the room. I've been sort of encouraged, invited, I mean, people have forced me to sort of wear a tie and smart clothes. And there's a bit where they sort of take me round to different tables to go, oh, say hello to these people. And like the people don't get up and I sort of feel like I'm just being sort of paraded mm. around these. Like, sort of, not that I don't think people should stand up and greet me, but if why am I being taken round the tables? You know, yes. like, you know, what's the point of this social discourse? I felt like I was being diminished. Now, in my head, right, I was feeling like very inadequate mm-hmm. and insecure in that room and not good and I felt a lot of negative feelings I, it was comparable to what you're saying there bland, superficial da, 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 da. now then the football match happened and West Ham happened to win 1-0 against Tottenham Hotspur and afterwards everyone's really lined up and people are going Russell couldn't I have a photograph of the same human beings the same people They're like the kids of one of the chairman want, like, wants a photograph of one of his mates people are being warm I end up talking to one of the uh, chair people and because they're being garrulous open and warm I have actually Access to a different strata of my own understanding. And, oh God, that that judgment of those people was coming in this instance, in my personal case, from my own feelings of fear and inadequacy. And what I when I my admiration of people that seem to me to be spiritual or enlightened is based on the fact that they are able to keep their own counsel. That like in the beginning they would go into that room and be like, "This is cool. It doesn't matter if people aren't exhibiting." Like you know, this idea of no self or deflation of the ego, of not being present in that way, of not looking for external approval to validate you. Of like, you know, as both of us, you and I obviously were as young men coming from Essex without, for different reasons, feeling like outsiders. Like, it's for me, what I have found is on one level, I think I'm correct in my sort of analysis of it being sort of corporate, banal, disingenuous, all of those kind of things, not just that West Ham room. That's a sort of a general adjudication on culture. But also, I know that what I bring to it is a need for approval and a need for love. And I feel a lot better personally 
when I'm able to be, I'm not as funny, but like, I, but I prefer it when I'm like being generally loving. When my general attitude, like I preferred the after in that chairman's yes. suite to the before. The before felt very lonely and sort of a bit scary. Yes. And like I wanted to get out of there. And the after felt like, um, you know, like, oh, this is cool. I can handle this. And, and also it revealed to me, Simon, that I was projecting that idea onto it that, I'm not arguing with what you're saying about television being sort of bland exchanges and sort of a vapid white noise, but I'm just curious about what you think you're bringing to it. What, I'm th- what I think I'm bringing to... That perception. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely there was a lot of, uh, yeah, like childhood trauma that I was bringing to it. And and now if you put me in a room with, I can't remember which pop People of Buzzcocks or whatever. Are, I would, I would, there would be, I mean, I sort of sense it now in sort of more... Um, situations where I feel like I'm not as anxious as I used to be and really? I sense it now even with when I sort of meet a sort of younger anxious person and I sort of um I notice it and I I'm I'm, I'm sat there in in a kind of uh strange calm in comparison to to this person so I, and I can see all the stuff that's going on mm. in their heads because it's familiar to me I can see it all and I it's it's quite nice for me because I feel like oh I'm not quite there anymore. That's nice. I can I feel a bit calmer. But that situation that you're in does sound like a bit of a thing, and you're there in a suit and tie, and it does sound annoying. Um, it's extraordinary to have to into like I mean the, 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 we're people that work in media, we work in show business, we have ambitions for stuff that we want to do. Mm-hmm. But you're going to come into direct contact with people that have got a different worldview, different agenda, different objective. Do you, how are you finding that? How are you finding sort of operating in this sphere? I feel really comfortable in what I'm up to now, I think. I think it took me a while to figure out. We were talking the other day about um, how I used to be working from this wound. Mm. There was this child wound that needed safety, approval, validation. And then uh, I got a lot of that and still loneliness occurred and uh, actually what I was after um, was intimacy and love and someone to just hug me, just one person to just hug me. Wow. And um, so the fact that, just like your story really, the fact that um, any kind of fame doesn't resolve the the root cause mm. of what you're, you know, of the problem, um, then you have to go on another journey. Okay, now I need a spiritual journey wow. to sort of sort this out. And I did, I, I, and I went to Peru and I drank ayahuasca and that really got to the root of my depression. A psychotherapist who I've been seeing for two years said I had classic depression, which I wasn't happy about. Classic, and, you drank a bit more off-key depression. Yeah, you? exactly. I, I, do I need the normal one? Can't I have something a bit special because I'm very special? You've got bug standard depression, <laughs> such as a needle worker might have in Lancashire. Yeah. So then I um, came home from Peru feeling uh, free and strong. When was this? How old were this you? Is, this is like, this is, um, this is just, I'm 32 or something at this point. Why did you do that? Why did you go to Peru and take ayahuasca? Because a friend of mine said that he'd done it and uh, he looked like he was about nine years old, just full of joy. And I thought, oh my God, I need whatever that is. And I couldn't, I was, I'd sort of stopped being able to feel anything. And so I came back and then didn't know how to retain this. It was so unfamiliar and so strange. It was then scary. Do you mind describing to us this experience of taking ayahuasca? Like, you know, just about, like, what happens? You go to Peru, someone meets you in a van. What happens? Someone does meet you in a van. I knew there'd be a van. <laughs> I knew there'd be a van. And um, you end up uh, then on a boat and 
you sail towards a bit of the rainforest where we're going to be drinking this plant medicine that's been used by the indigenous people for thousands of years to heal themselves. And um, you're in a group of people. How many group? How many Maybe group? about 11 other people from Did around you know the world. Them? Nope. And I didn't want to get to know them at first because I thought I'm very separate mm. and different to these other troubled loons. And then by the end... I was hugging them and uh, felt deeply connected to them. Mm. And what happens so your is... your journey begins with you feeling very isolated and alone. Totally and it isolated. And ends with you feeling very connected. Yes. So what happens... And to they... nature as well. Wow. After the last ceremony, I'll discuss what happens in the ceremonies, but after the last ceremony, I felt a, a, a deep desire to hug a tree. Mm. I couldn't find a tree, so I found a wooden post and ended up kissing the wooden post like a maniac. Mm. But I really appreciated and loved nature. I felt like I was nature. I felt like um, I had to pay back what nature had done to me because what it did to me by drinking this plant medicine, um, I, I, um, I saw myself... You, you have visions. You, you throw up and then you have visions of... I saw myself in the womb. I saw myself in a Did pram. you feel like you were, like, say, do you feel like you're, if this was a computer game, would you see little Simon in the womb or are you little Simon I in the womb? I am little Simon in the womb. I have an awareness of myself in the room in, mm. in a conventional reality as well, but I am seeing and hearing and feeling things from the perspective of that baby. And presumably that is somewhere in the consciousness of all of us. We have all had that experience of being in a womb and, you, and it felt vivid and real, but you could sort of somewhat uh, objectify it. You could somewhat look yes. down on it. Yes. Wow. And it was something I couldn't get to through psychotherapy. And there was all, there was, it always felt like there was something we couldn't quite get to. Do you want the full? Yeah. Go on, okay. This bit. might be a bit much for a podcast. Here we go. So... Protect yourself, but like tell yeah, us. Yes, so I just readjusted myself to. in the seat. Mm. <laughs> Here we go. I saw myself in a pram being rocked by my mother, slash mother ayahuasca. Mm. And then I heard in the room that I was actually in as an adult, a girl opposite me screaming and crying because she was having her own experience. It seemed like she was being chased by something in her mind. And uh, I then had a... Uh, a vision of my mum crying. Mm. And, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I shouldn't say too much. But yeah, I had a vision of my crying, my mum crying, and my sense as a baby was that I needed to do something to stop her mother. crying, yes. Mm. And then something in the rainforest, in this medicine, said to me, you were just a baby. You couldn't even crawl. And I started crying and realised that I had been blaming myself for not doing something to stop my mother crying mm. and um this uh and then i kept hearing or repeating that sentence you were just a baby you couldn't even crawl and suddenly all this responsibility all this guilt was gone and i was able to sit up and this it felt like that was the root of it that mm. was the first moment that mm. child experiencing this moment of trauma and making up a story about it that he was responsible for it. He should have done something. That was the moment. And everything made sense. I was very shy as a child. I wouldn't leave my mum any, anywhere. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go anywhere without her. And uh, everything made sense from that point onwards. And my, and my posture, I sort of suffered from like, difficult posture for a while. I became very um, round-shouldered and like, didn't want to, I didn't want to be seen. I wanted to make myself invisible. And even in the stuff that I do now, which is quite... Um, uh, what's the word? You know, I'm on a stage and I'm um, expressive. 
Yes. It's not quite the one. Extrovert. 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 Inside, really, I'm the same scared, crying child, or I was a lot of the time. And so even on any of those shows where I'm being this sort of like confident, uh, you know, roaster of these celebrities, you know, that's coming from a place of just needing to feel like safe and like everything is okay. And I need the truth. I need the truth. <laughs> because um, I think I've gone on a bit of a tangent. No, no, this is perfect. Um... Anyway, after that, so so that got to the root of it, and then that and that was only the second ceremony, and there were two to go, and then you go away for a week, do you? And there were four oh ceremonies. yeah, and it, and also and the other key thing to it was that there were talking circles after each ceremony the morning after, and I had always found it very difficult to speak in a sincere, grounded way without making it funny to cope. Yeah. And I spoke about, and, I, and in the first talking circle after the first ceremony, I was funny and I was getting laughs. And I was quite pleased with myself. And then I thought, why am I trying to get laughs at this retreat where people are drinking ayahuasca? They're not, nobody's trying to be funny here. We're trying mm. to be better. Mm. And so I thought, just, just ground yourself. And actually what was interesting was I ended up being quite funny, but from a very grounded, rooted place and, uh, and cried in front of all these strangers. And um, that was... Uh, that was healing in itself. That's very interesting stuff there, mate. Like the um, the beginning of it, you said that you were sort of struck by a, a sort of an almost composite... There was a series of composite images and composite realities. The image of your personal Simon Amstel mother and the concept of ayahuasca as a mother or mm. nature as a mother or this new dominion of consciousness as a kind of mother figure, one that's able to provide in this instance the reassurances that you were unable to receive for whatever reason in your literal in in infancy. That That's amazing because I am very interested in the way that archetypes operate because because most people have the experience of a mother or certainly a mother figure of some kind it's almost part of the hard wiring of a human being to have that relationship and it's very difficult i think in such instances to attain any kind of objectivity or real understanding unless you have an experience like you've just described where you are able to transcend the typical contextualization the typical understanding of your own life you're able to see see like whether or not that was a real or mythic baby in the pram and a real or mythic mother evidently you felt like it was your job to look after your mother and it's something that I feel myself as well like with my mother like it's my job to protect this woman and and every relationship that I find myself in there is a repetition of that idea of like oh, my job is to take care of this person I liked it as well the way that you traced it into like forms of control the idea that you use humour as a way to control your environment because what is the objective of control or power ultimately is to feel loved. Like sometimes when I think about Theresa May or powerful people like Donald Trump, you know, like the initial thing they want is power and dominion. But why do they want power yeah. and dominion? Because on some level they don't feel safe. Yes. Like when you see Theresa May yeah. like or Donald Trump, if we could find a way, and I think this is, you know, to go back to carnage and your the, the, the successful modus operandi of the uh, activist protagonist of the film was when he discovered that compassion was more powerful than agitation or, or violence, I suppose. Is it like perhaps you can interface with people on that level of love mm. if you if you can find it in yourself. Yeah. It's all very well having a go at Donald Trump, but what kind of childhood must he have had to have felt like he needed that much money, power and fame? How unsafe must he have felt? Have you seen the uh, film Little Shop of Horrors? I kind of know this one from <laughs> the so, teenage time. Seymour Krellborn 
This may be a very long and dull tangent. You can make but it work. Seymour Kerlborn, Simon. He works in a flower shop. It's not doing very well, the flower shop. Nobody comes in, no customers. Then he finds a strange and interesting plant Is in another flower Rick shop. Moranis? Yes. And also me, 19 years ago at school. And Less I... notably. <laughs> we weren't being self-effacing there, so is it all right? To I think it's all right. Joke there? I think is it's okay? okay. But you should look into why you needed to. So I... I know why. So <laughs> Rick Moranis, uh, Seymour Krelborn found this strange and interesting plant. He puts it in the window of his flower shop. People start coming. They say, what a strange and interesting plant. I'll buy some other flowers while I'm here. Everything starts to go very well in the business. And also, um, he becomes famous on the cover of Life magazine because this strange and interesting plant gets bigger. The only problem is that the plant feeds on human blood (laughs) and then humans. And so Seymour has to make the decision about whether he should keep feeding this plant dead human beings or whether he should give up on all the fame and money he's acquired. And the reason he wants that fame and money is because his um, girlfriend, Audrey, he worries, will she love me without the plant? Mm. Eventually she says, yes, I'd love you without the plant. Then he goes about killing the plant, but it's too late. The plant is now too powerful and uh, and kills all of humanity. Wonderful. What do you think this is analogous to? Well, I I think about how... Seymour didn't really want to be famous. He didn't want to be on the cover of Life magazine. And he, all he really wanted was the love of Audrey. He just wanted the love of one person. And, uh, and, mm. for, and what, what, what does it cost to get all that fame and attention and, and money? What's the cost? And it's often uh, humanity, possibly your own. Mm. What does it benefit a man if he gaineth the world but loseth his own soul? I think it's maybe Thomas Aquinas or it's the Bible or something like that. But like, yeah, that's good shit, mate. So like the, the <laughs> so that the uh, the plant is the ego and uh, sort of Rick Moranis is in this case some sort of essential self. And I suppose right. So we sort of at some point in our childhood we start to think if we're famous we'll be lovable. But actually, yeah. what we were looking for in the first place was love. Yes. And I suppose we've been on comparable journeys. We both sort of like got into the world of celebrity, all that kind of stuff, and are both now happily in in relationships where we seem to have our needs met and aren't rapaciously looking for fame. So there's a different kind of objective. It's totally di- I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do once I was kind of um, happy. This is all due to Dan. Dan made you feel so fulfilled and happy. Daniel and Ayahuasca together. I think if it all hadn't you need been... is a good boyfriend <laughs> and mind-bending drugs. <laughs> and then you can be happy. I think that's it. That definitely worked for me. Thanks for listening, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very difficult to know then what... Because there'd, there'd been this thing driving me. Like, we have to... We have to do this so that we'll be okay. And once I felt okay, I didn't know whether I was whether I needed to do anything anymore. But then it was, I sort of didn't. I didn't feel like um, felt like I got to the root of my depression. But I still had a mortgage, and <laughs> I sort of still had the ability to be a bit funny. So I thought, oh, this is a. It's, I've been left with this thing now, mm. and uh, and so to. Um, you know, what to do with it. And it, then it doesn't become about the self so much. What's lovely is that you now have this thing that you can do, but you can, you can use it to serve some other cause. It's very interesting, mate, because what you're talking about there is the idea of devotional service. Like, I mean, like sort of a lot of religious art, all art, in fact, seems to begin with, like, even when it's totemic early pagan art, it's like the worship of the animals that are feeding the tribe or the plants that are feeding the tribe. In your tribe, one likes to think if we, there was a Paleolithic version of Simon Amstel out there in the annals of time. So, like, uh, like sort of the, the 
art was for God and God is for good. You know, if you like, if you have trouble with a monotheistic, uh, idolatrous idea of God, then it sort of seems that you found a connection in yourself that means that part of your own consciousness, part of your own existence is not just your memories, your fears, your biology and biography, but there seemed to be some other component that directly communicated with you as a result of this ayahuasca experience and it heightened you yeah something definitely some there's definitely something uh i had a moment in i had a moment i didn't know what to do with when i got home where and at the end of the last ceremony uh i looked in the mirror i thought i was curious to see what would happen if i looked in the mirror Mm. and i think it's important to say that this isn't like a crazy drug experience this isn't drugs like fun drugs yeah this this is a spiritual pursuit of enlightenment and it's not easy to go and do that stuff uh you know i've I've had magic mushrooms and they're just fun and giggly and Mm. uh this was this was like um a shamanic ritual that Mm. could that had to be guided and it was it was uh it wasn't you know wasn't a load of maniacs in a cupboard so (laughs) as it often is right that's my experience (laughs) so um I looked in the mirror and uh, I sort of started swaying forwards and backwards until my face froze mm-hmm. and something said, you are God looking through you, which made total sense at the time that the body is some sort of vessel, that all identity is an illusion, but there is something, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what to do with the word God, I don't know what to do with that word, but yeah. that was the word that came, but... Um, that there is something, there is something that um, that uh, the, that's that's being channeled. Yes, and I don't know what to, I don't know what I I can't. There's no words for whatever that whatever that beyond words beyond language thing is. I find myself doing much better in life if I am surrendered to that rather than following my ego's maniacal ideas. That's a great piece of information. But, um, most religious traditions have to at some point deal with that you know like uh, our friend carl who's one of the voices in your film yeah a good bit a puppet bit where he's the farmer a farmer father fella um said uh like uh like the 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 sort of the scriptural declaration of christ uh the way to god is through me the only way to god is through me carl says that he thinks it's a mistranslation that the way to god is through i the way to God is through self. The way to God is through understanding that you, you are that the egoic self is a composition, and there is a truer self witnessing that. Who is witnessing your thoughts? Who is witnessing your body? What is witnessing this consciousness? Well, when you talk about how like the the conditions under which the shamanic and transcendent ayahuasca experience was conducted, I hearken back to my own experience with hallucinogens as a young man in Grey's Essex and uh, living in bedsits in London. Like when I first took acid, I was sick. 16 and I took it with other boys who were like a couple of years older than me and I like the thing that you said it like the experience is comparable there was literally a moment of looking in the mirror where like I thought oh my god that's not who I am I am not that transitory (laughs) mechanical biochemical organism I am the consciousness that temporarily inhabits it but I was in a flat in New Cross Gate (laughs) with Grant from from up in Leeds fucking hell Russell what the fuck are you doing in that bathroom I'm just realising that I'm pure consciousness (laughs) can you help me please like you know that like and sort of and I remember that like there were kids that were younger than me at school taking acid and like and I was and like when 
now my own experience with hallucinogens makes me realize what, what careful conditions this should be undertaken under. I would mm. never be glib or frivolous about, as a you know, recovering drug addict, about any drugs, and particularly not about uh, any substance that introduces the seemingly already present understanding. Somewhere latent within the self is the idea that everything you feel about yourself, everything you think about yourself, is a construction as a result of possibly trauma, possibly shame, usually, usually early life experience. And that if you can negotiate or navigate your way to a purer or clearer connection with this self that is transcendent of that, you are more happy. And this is the experience you've been having. Yes. Your work's improved as a result of it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what was wrong with it before? Oh, it was terribly cruel, <laughs> frivolous, flippant stuff. The other bit I really liked, Sai, was when you were talking about the um, talking circle subsequent to it. Because mm-hmm. it might, might, um, I can't take drugs anymore. And whenever you talk about uh, iOS, I think, oh, I'd love to do that. I mean, surely now there are young people all over the world thinking, and older people too, thinking, oh, come on, I'm off. I'm off to Peru. But some say it should be taken in that environment. Environment, that those the two plants required to create that mm. potion only grow in that part of the forest if you don't take them together in the right proportions da, 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 da. but of course now people offer that experience in LA or in England and I had the opportunity to do it in Los Angeles and I thought god is it a breach of my I'm in recovery of course which for me I don't take anything that affects me from the neck up I'm a wreck up from the neck up so I don't take anything like that and I, god I really want to because like me because I think my drug addiction in the first place Simon is like I want to live in that realm I want to understand it and when you're saying about this sort of hacking away for truth growing up in uh, Romford Essex that's really what you know like when you say truth it's like it's liberation it's mm, freedom yes that's it yeah and it really it sets it, yeah it sets you free it really does set you free the truth yeah the right I, find that in the, I mean you must find this with stand up as well that I feel shameful about something I think I can't bear to say that to anyone and I say it on stage and people laugh and I think oh thank goodness it's okay yeah. that laughter says you're okay we feel that too in the 12 step fellowships that I attend like like uh there are, it's extraordinary to me you know like because people that look incredibly like, like different from me Women in middle age, like sort of people. You look that a bit like a woman in middle age. Oh, I would don't say. be so disgusting! Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through the change here. <laughs> like people, like sort of young people of different ethnicity. I hear them describe the experience of being me, mm. of like thinking they can cure or heal themselves with some tincture of the heartbreak of like some sort of casual exchange in a street, the sort of longing and yearning. And it seems that we're all operating from the same basic palette of emotions. And when you say, dear Donald Trump, what must you like here on meeting Donald Trump, there can be only one question. What did your parents do to you <laughs> to yeah. make you like this? Yeah. Come and give us a cuddle, you silly sod. But Don't could- you grab that. If he'd have, it could have been so different if he'd have had a happy childhood. I'm just, I mean, I'm projecting a lot here, but mm. let's assume he could have still been the guy who made loads. Of, he could have loved Lego and thought, oh, I love making buildings, but he definitely wouldn't have put his name on them. He would have named them all sorts of wonderful, imaginative things. They would have been colourful and joyful. Yeah, he wouldn't have had to put Trump on the top of no, it. No, what, what mania is that? I recognise it, don't you? Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting now is that we're now wandering around with this kind of information, but still we have, still you've got a, you know, this is a podcast with your Mm. name on it. I'm about to do a tour, which is my name. We still have to, but I suppose there's a difference between um, using these these signifiers in order that people know, like it's useful to have a label on some jam so you know which which type of jam it is. Those are useful things, but we used to be so identified with those labels probably. We used to 
to be so like this is you know it's, it was everything it was everything rather than a what's tour. your new jam called enlightenment soup the new tour is called what is this what is what this? is this because this jam better someone better put some <laughs> sugar in this shit <laughs> let me tell you no like i mean so look i i recognize but like i know people that are a lot further down this path as i'm sure you do than we are and they say that the, the struggle continues lust continues mm. greed continues self-doubt continues like a bloody hell didn't i saw an interview with the dalai lama once and he sort of said i wish i'd had more birds the dalai lama what hope is there for any of us and like there's a fellow I know, that, uh, Radhanath Swami, a renunciate, mendicant, proper hardcore, monk-shaved head, dressed in okra robes type guy. And like, he's like, sort of like, you know, last time I spoke to him, to, we, uh, again, Carl sort of said to him, like, what about, do you still feel, what do you do with lust or greed or envy now? And he said, they remind me that I always need to move closer to God. Now, God is a contentious word in these times because it's, you know, either sort of mad, angry white people or undereducated brown people that you seem to think are sort of using these terms. But from when I use it, it's like, is there something within my consciousness that's not my individuated self? Is there some aspect of beingness, of consciousness that's beyond? And even the, the great polemicist and brilliantly uh, the, the uh, professional contrarian and some would say genius, Christopher Hitchens, who I, I adore, actually. Mm-hmm. Like when he talks about like, you know, like I saw him debating a, some, some sort of like not fit to lace hitches, shoelaces, uh, uh, Christian guy. And Hitchens went like, uh, like, and he says, like, well, what do you think that is? Why do we all have this moral standard? And this was an argument that C.S. Lewis uh, uses in Mere Christianity. Why is it that all of us know there is a thing called good? Why is it? And Christopher Hitchens sort of in this argument isn't really able to sort of counter that. He sort of uses an example of Socrates when on trial for his life sort of talked about having a daemon, an inner self, an inner spirit that is aware of a true self, like the experience you're describing with Ayahuasca. But no one, like, and, and of course the evolutionary psychologists say, oh, we learn to cooperate in groups and it's, we've, been, we've evolved to be nice to one another. But I can find no mechanistic understanding for the kind of experiences I've had within my own consciousness, and, um, nor for what you have described. You know, this is, there is something beyond our material and biochemical nature or at least our biochemical nature as we can currently understand it, it seems to me. I mean, that's a bit of a hard thing to throw at you as a question. So I'll just uh, <laughs> move neatly to asking you, Simon, what's your book called? The book is called Help. Help? Just help. Exclamation mark or... No, no exclamation mark. Inverted commas? No. No punctuation, just help. Lowercase, help. Nice. <laughs> and and it, as you say, it's uh, transcripts of your stand-up. And... Yeah, and uh, further thoughts and feelings is the phrase I keep saying. Just it's it's. It, for example, there's like, um, for example, there's. I spoke about uh, ayahuasca in a show called Numb, but at the point where I said, and then I was reborn, I say on stage, there's no time to talk about that, but I was reborn. In the book, I say, there's now time, and then we go on for 20 pages about what happened. And mm. uh, it's really been interesting going through all the, seeing all the patterns and seeing where I end up writing almost the same joke again. Not out of laziness, just out of the fact that I'm a human being with patterns. And you organically recover. Yes. Yeah, you rediscover that pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And also going into some bits of stand-up where I didn't know why I was saying it at the time. There's a bit where I spoke about, um, in a quite an early show, I spoke about mooning my grandma. And I didn't, I, I just thought that was a sort of funny story, I suppose. I knew there was some sort of psychological reason behind why I mooned my grandma. But then I write in the book... I understand this now as a story about a young gay person in Essex who is doing something that is totally inappropriate to see if something inappropriate could still be met with love. Could it? 
<laughs> yeah, she was. She didn't mind. <laughs> she didn't mind. Good on her, old nan. Yeah, she. She, she took she, it on the chin. She went, oh, well done, or something like that. It was like <laughs> she, she was so. How old are you? Six or seven? No, unfortunately, I'm like fifteen. Oh, Simon, 15. that's actually like a hack joke. You were fifteen at the time. Fifteen, and you got your bum out. I know. It's What's a, the context? The context is being gay. That's not good enough. Yes, I'm well, where sorry. Where were you being gay? Where were you being gay? And uh, what, in what <laughs> room of the house were you doing it in? Uh, only in my head. You were gay in your head, and you, you used your ass to express it at now. Because of the frustration, from the frustration. Mm. You know, if I won't be able to be who I am in this living room. I'm going to okay. reveal myself. Yeah, and I think that's what I've, I think in terms of what you were talking about earlier about being mean and stuff. I think everything I've ever done in show business has been a version of showing my grandma on my bottom. Will you still accept me if I'm this nutty? Some say that Simon Amstel is his own <laughs> harshest critic, but I say he's, mo- he's his own most accurate. Everything he's done has been a version of showing his nanny's ass. <laughs> he said it himself. Now, I'm sure a lot of your work has been a good deal better than showing your own ass to a. a I wasn't saying the work man. was of the quality. I of... know that that was my comedic ah. take. That's what I do for, 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 for this podcast. It's one of the things I offer. So, yeah, no, that's a, a beautiful insight, as a matter of fact. And of course, I, you know, almost totally identify yeah. we've under, we've gone through very very similar journeys somehow you and i all right so what is it that's your book uh oh no no what is this what is this is the tour what is this is the tour help is the book help is the book yes help the book <laughs> what is this the tour when the, you starting your tour uh september mm. you ready no you don't need to be yet <laughs> got any jokes what are you almost doing? ready yeah, I think so. I think it's probably 78% there. Oh, 78%. There you go. Lovely. And the book's ready. The book's done. That'll be out in September. September. You're hitting yeah. the world hard, Si. Yeah. You're getting out there. You're going to do promo? I suppose I will, yes. What do you see yourself being on and how are you going to do it? What are you going to do? Sit there like Richard Iowaddy? <laughs> <laughs> Causing people an hard time. <laughs> Warm aloofness of Iowaddy. I'll just send him to do it, maybe. He could, maybe that'd be I mean, he'd sort be brilliant. of thing he'd enjoy doing. What better than me, you think? Better? No, not better than you. I think you're very good at promoting things. You know, this comes from a position of love. Stop being so sensitive. Now, what things are you going to go on? Richard and Judy? That's, uh, this you is one just that... go back to the past and That's go right. on to. <laughs> Why don't you do it as one of your meta documentaries? Go back to the past. <laughs> Drag Richard and Judy <laughs> out of whatever it is they're currently re- relaxing in, reposing in. No, so like, how do you like? Because that for me is one of the, the great challenges. Is sort of like you know, I go on these sort of insular, personal journeys of discovery. Mm-hmm. Sit around meditating, chanting, doing Kundalini yoga, doing my level best to get high without drugs. Mm-hmm. And like then, like I have to go and be on like not have to go and get to be on the great privilege of going on sort of television programs or whatever. And I sometimes can feel the room like like oh this is weird. Because it's all reduced, because it's all three questions in five minutes and it's all you're reduced into a kind of product thing and a brand. And Mm. uh, it's not it can't somehow those programs can't take in the full complexity of what we are. No, they're not designed to, are they? And in fact, a lot of it is about exclusion and and discernment and sort of like, America is so robust. I remember when like sort of promoting the book like Revolution in this country, there was a sort of like, every interview I did was basically, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you write this book, right? People were really angry. In America, like David Letterman was just like, 
So you've written a book called Revolution. Uh, congratulations. It's like, 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 utterly indifferent because they know that the, the manner of capitalism and commerce that they have there, and I don't mean no in a conspiratorial way, but just no deep, deep in their bones. This yeah. is just a book. You could have write a book about <laughs> rabbits if you want. <laughs> you ain't going to do nothing to this. This machine will shred it up and spit it out yeah. if you're lucky. That was my sad moment post-carnage. I'd, I'd whipped myself into a bit of a fervour that the whole world was going to turn vegan after this because we'd worked so hard and made it so funny. And then I went to a dinner party and there were people eating sausages in front of me and I was like what didn't you and they'd seen it they told me Brilliant. they told me they liked it, it. we well, just like, eating a sausage what, what's going on what do we do with that Si what do we do with the evident limitations I think we just keep going I suppose if you can actually let go of the ego like, yeah. of like a, the, the idea of personal authority I mean it's very hard for me it's an ongoing battle I can start off and go and do something like right I'm going to help these homeless and then like sort of five minutes into helping the homeless I'm like, god I'm great helping these homeless oh, people. I wonder if someone's seeing homeless me people. helping these homeless these homeless <laughs> <laughs> in fact I th- did you do that gig with me at 93 feet east when I was still like, yes that was a disaster wasn't it I mean there'd be so many disastrous gigs 93 feet east it was very cool East London before before East London is what it is now, actually, long ago enough. You released, was it Live Locusts into the audience? Live Locusts were released Live into Locusts the into the audience and then said, please welcome Simon Astor. <laughs> <laughs> if you thought that was bad, here's <laughs> Simon Amstel. You'll be praying for more Locusts. You were very brilliant even then. Well, not that, no, I wasn't. Well, I was no, I mean, uh, the comp here had not done a great job <laughs> of warming the room up, let's say. Oh, dear, I apologise for that. No, it's all right. Well, you were on drugs, weren't you? That's right, and that's my excuse, and I'll keep on using it. I thought you it. looked so cool, though, with your little pipe. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this is such a cool guy. What wow. an eccentric. Yeah. I was adorable, wasn't I? Poor little fella on my journey to the gutter. All right, let's make sure that we've uh, covered everything. We've uh, uh, we've covered, basically, the idea of your brilliant film, Carnage, which is on BBC iPlayer. I'm sure it's uh, going to be available in new portals and dimensions soon, I hope so. Possibly. Yeah, maybe it'll be on one of the... But it'll be on iPlayer for five years, so there's no rush. Well, just watch it when you want, yeah. at your leisure. Yeah. Enjoy your sausages while you can. Because <laughs> <laughs> after that, you won't be able to. No, you won't. Like, I mean, it's affected uh, our household. Almond milk only. We still grapple with cheese somewhat, but I'm doing it. It's definitely reduced. We're well on the way. There's great new cheeses out there. Great new cheeses, guys. And uh, like, uh, I've got my own eggs. Like, And those chickens, I hope they're okay, although the cockerel's behaviour is reprehensible, I've got to say, towards the females in that bloody coop. I wonder if you should have those chickens. What should I do with them? I mean, they're there now, Si. Hmm. Well, come on. I mean, like, you know, the idealism out of a cost. What, just let them into the field next door? I wonder what would happen if you stopped stealing their eggs. Then what would happen? They'd have more babies. You'd have loads of chickens. Mm. A chicken sanctuary is really what you should be creating. Well, I feel like I have created one, except (laughs) I do take some of their unborn children. Yes. And eat them. (laughs) <laughs> Quick smart before the fetuses develop, not for any moral reason other than it's bloody disgusting. I mean, well, what points life life? I mean, this is this is the question. Oh, I mean, maybe there's no more time to. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a big idea. I've also just bought some bloody bees. But like, I'm not. Look, I'm not desperate for these creatures' stuff. I don't care about them. I don't want their stuff. I just like having them around. Bear got stung on the snout by a bee on oh. day one. He, he seems alright about it. We've put chicken wire around them now. Uh, I don't know. But, I mean, your situation is very different to what's actually going on out there. Let's not worry about your situation. I'm not the problem. I'm, I'm part of the solution, the surely. But those chickens aren't laying eggs because they, they know Russell Brand needs an omelette. Yeah. They, they really are trying to have a baby. 
I know they are. I've watched them at it. And I tell you what, mate, it looks like only one party is enjoying it, <laughs> to be absolutely <laughs> clear with you. But you're quite right. And I'm sort of I'm totally on board with your worldview and your numerous crusades and more particularly your, the manner in which you're undertaking it. Your, your fastidious focus and d- diligence. I admire you, Simon. I think you're very brilliant. I like you very much as well. Let's stay friends. All right, then. Shall we? That seems to me like we've done enough to constitute a podcast. Is there anything like we've promoted Help, your book? We should buy that in September. Carnage, no rush, five years more of, of that. And Sai will be on the road with What Is This? Like from September. I'll certainly be going to see it. Thank you, Simon Emstall. Thank you, Russell Brand. Ah, oh, we know each other. <laughs> So that was a fantastic episode of Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, and Simon Amstel. It was sponsored, of course, by me, Russell Brand, Rebirth. I'm going to be in Southport, Cambridge, Cheltenham, Aylesbury, Watford and Skegness over May and June. Cheltenham and Bristol sold out, but there's tickets available for Southport, 23rd of May. Cambridge, 23rd of May. Aylesbury, 6th of June. Watford, 7th of June. Second date in Watford. The last one was mental. And there's another date that's been added to Bristol on the 10th of June. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. If you like this show, go to iTunes or the other one was called what's it called stick them up the stitch hole if that's if you've got a samsung stitcher stitch back up your stitchy so go to them review the hell out of it mention that nice mr brown who hosts them he's a wonderful fellow say that you like all everything about it thank you give it five stars don't be childish we love you always get involved under the skin no what do we say look under the skin but don't smell it that's our catchphrase all right